0: Welcome to the Vast Institute's Taste of Original Thinking podcast. My name is Michelle Sherman, and we're here to discuss how, as an original thinker, you can achieve greater things in a world that demands fresh and innovative solutions. On today's episode, we welcome Maria Ross, a bold and enlightened brand strategist and author of The Empathy Edge, to discuss a topic near and dear to my heart, balancing gracefully on The Empathy Edge. Today, we will explore the role of empathy and leadership and hear from Maria, how to infuse the sweet scent of curiosity and presence into your work, team, and culture. But first, allow me to clarify, what is original thinking? It is a profound and gentle approach to what ails this world. It is a bold step on the path towards illuminated living. As original thinker Albert Einstein said, We cannot solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And we agree with Albert. Have you ever been mentally stuck while trying to solve what seems to be an insurmountable problem? Our minds are like rivers. They flow where they have been before. Thus, original thinkers are the answer to a lot of what the world needs right now in your life, professional world, and also the world at large. Vast Institute content and curriculum liberates you through the mastery of competencies that promote clarity, confidence, and imagination, and they elevate your level of thinking. And you can apply that to solving your problems and the world's problems. Original thinkers are prone to awaken the genius within. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, Maria Ross, brand strategist, speaker, and author, host of her own podcast, The Empathy Edge, is here to discuss the value of empathy as a brand and leadership advantage. Now she's gonna share this via the lens of her own experience. Those who have come to her for brand strategy, storytelling and messaging, vast is amongst her portfolio. I first met Maria at a keynote she delivered in Seattle to an executive group and was duly impressed with her courage and honesty. She had just returned to work after recovering from a life-threatening illness and was ready to rock that room with the experience Garnered during that time of reflection and healing that included empathy one of the many things I enjoy about Maria is her vibrancy and passion to enrich the business community to address any empathy deficit with the findings and wisdom that allow her to balance on that empathy edge so I welcome you Maria it is wonderful to have you here today
1: I am so happy to be here, Michelle. Thank you for inviting me on. And I'm a huge fan of Vast's work in creating more conscious and enlightened leaders because that is exactly what our world needs right now.
0: Thank you, Maria. I was reading. The Empathy Edge, and the thing about it, I love that it's just chock full of tips and techniques, checklists, it just really helps those of us who have been in leadership positions and those of us who are aspiring to really understand what it takes to be an effective, empathetic leader. Much appreciated. I was reading through it, and one of your quotes just jumped out at me. You said, cultures driven by competition or ones that induce action through fear can never truly innovate. At best, we call that conscious commerce. Tell us a little bit more about that, Maria. So when I was researching the book in the three years that
1: I spent cultivating all that research and curating it, what I found is that there were a lot of studies out there that showed that empathetic cultures lead to more innovation, more innovative products and services, they lead to uh, better collaboration, better communication, which is sort of a virtuous cycle. And there was a, a very famous study from Google years ago. They did a research study on the data around their most productive and innovative products. What they found is that contrary to their thinking, that the groups who created those products and brought them to market were the A-plus MIT grads, the most knowledgeable computer technologists on the planet. Planet, it was actually the teams. I hesitate to say the B teams, but like the teams that on paper wouldn't have been like the ones that graduated from all the top schools or had the top grades. But groups that were high in empathy, communication, and collaboration, they were the ones responsible for those most innovative and profitable products that Google brought to market. So there was a very clear aha for Google that these soft skills are anything but soft. They actually matter to business performance to the bottom line. And there's so many studies, one of them, for example, the state of workplace empathy that's done every year by business solver, the number keeps going up and up and up as to the percentage of CEOs who believe that empathy has an impact on financial performance. And it's because there's all this data now available. So that quote you mentioned when you really parse it out, I think everyone could go, oh my gosh, that is kind of common sense. It makes sense. But when your team is free from worrying about the stuff that doesn't matter, worrying about their safety, whether they're going to have a job, how, you know, how their boss feels about them, how their colleagues feel about them, if they feel safe and secure, if they feel seen, heard and valued, which is the definition of an empathetic environment, they are now free to do what you hired them to do which is innovate and create and take risks. And they're not afraid. They don't sort of have that monkey on their back on what's holding them back from thriving in the workplace. And the recipients of that goodness are not just those workers who get to bring their best selves to work every day, but the company they work for performs better in the market. So I can't think of a better win-win for humanity than you know, being good to your people and creating an environment where they can be themselves and thrive and feel understood and valued and have a positive impact on your bottom line.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Maria, for that explanation, because what I'm hearing you say is synergy. And one of the things that the Vast Institute works on is creating synergy within organizations. And Buckminster Fuller said it very nicely. And many, and I think it's Aristotle who said it originally, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. When people unleash, we call it that last 5% that you're talking about, empathy has a major role in that. May I ask you another one? You s- Explain what empathy is in the business context, but what made you write this book? You could be doing so many different things and you're involved in <laughs> wonderful projects, both on the, on the professional level and the personal level, uh, always enriching the world. But what made you write this book? There were very personal reasons
1: and sort of a perfect storm, a confluence of things that came together to tell me I needed to write this book. It was back in the about the fall of 2016. And we had just gone through a very, very contentious presidential election. I think no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you could agree with that. And I was just very bereft about the behaviors that I saw from leaders. And at the same time, all these scandals were breaking, right? With business leaders just behaving badly. There were sexual harassment allegations, there were corruption allegations. And at the time, my son was two and a half. And here I am reading him these books about how to be kind and share and collaborate and be empathetic. And it was disheartening because I looked up and I thought, but the world he's going into, this is the model of success we're seeing, is these people that are making headlines.
0: I just want to clarify that the model of success was a do anything it takes to win, when it all costs mentality, which might be the antithesis of empathy. Yes. And also that these people were super
1: successful and behaving in this way Poor role models. So I decided to kind of investigate, like, where are the role models? Surely there has to be people that are leading with empathy and compassion and humility that are doing really well. That's what I was delighted to find is that there's lots of examples. We just don't shine a light on them because they don't make headlines. But you know, you look at you look at Zoom Communications, you look at Salesforce.com, you look at a social enterprise like Parker Clay, which does uh, luxury goods, actually benefits women in Ethiopia at the same time. So there's all these examples of people that have made these purpose-driven, mission-driven businesses, and lead with. That is their primary purpose and the money follows. So I decided to make the business case with the book. And that's, that's really why I did that and continue to do the podcast to shine a light on those leaders and those organizations.
0: May I just add vast client list to your list? Because we have only ha- we've only had the honor of only working with people who wanted to make the world a better place. And they knew that abuse of power was not right use of power. Mm-hmm. And there's a real distinction between right use of power and abuse of power. And so I just want to say what a magnificent opportunity for people to understand how to access that right use of power through empathy and the work you are doing.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And I think also there's a lot of people that are starting to realize that, well, number one, the business paradigm is changing. It was a man-made, human-made construct to begin with. So we don't, we're not stuck with it. It's not a law of physics that take no prisoners, win at all costs, stab your colleagues in the back to get ahead. Like those were things we created so we can uncreate them. Those are myths.
0: Those are myths that are there to perpetuate poor behavior and a very immature approach to power and being responsible or being a leader. Just my personal opinion.
1: Right. No, I mean, it's true. Don't like bullies. No, no. And so, you know, and also what we're finding is that the benefit of that type of management, of that type of leadership is actually really short term. And so, you know, you might think, oh, command and control is easier because I can get things done. But in the long term, you're not, you're, your organization is not going to thrive. Your people are not going to thrive. You're going to lose people to the competition. And that's you know what we're seeing recently with the great resignation is people aren't putting up with it anymore.
0: <laughs> Thank goodness. It, it reminds me of Fortune 100 technology company that was hemorrhaging senior level women, and they couldn't mm-hmm. figure out why. And it wasn't until we had a, by invitation only, No one had access except the people in the room who wanted to really solve the problem and that we had the support of people from the very top to actually enforce some of the recommendations and changes that were being put together. We came up with a code of conduct and that code of conduct was our attempt to step into directly into empathy. But if we had mentioned it 10 years ago, people would have giggled. Right. So exactly. Your, your timing is brilliant.
1: Exactly. And you know that the 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 whole like it will just give people more money or just give people more benefits like that's not that's not what people want. They want autonomy, they want to have impact, they want to work with purpose like the most talented people do. So if you want to attract the most talented people before your competitors do, mm-hmm. you have to create that environment and that starts at the individual leader level behaving in a certain way.
0: And liking themselves. Mm -hmm. I usually much more prone to listen to people who are authentic and like themselves, which is probably why that's core competencies At best focus on authenticity, because everybody has a different leadership style and some people are a little gruff, but when they own it and they apologize because they're a little gruff, you go, oh, that's just a little gruff, you know, vice president in charge of, and he or she, or they, they're cool people. They're just learning with us. So.
1: Right. And that self-awareness goes a long way. Like I think it's, you have to acknowledge that could be a stumbling block in your leadership and you can figure out how to embrace that or own that, but at least the lens is off you and more on what is the impact my behavior is having on the people around me. That's where you get empathetic
0: leadership. Absolutely. Brilliant. So I have a question. What are some of the key elements in the empathetic leader? You know, we had talked about the sweet scent of certain things at the beginning of the podcast. But what what do you think are the elements that are most achievable, possibly, you know, they're aspirational, Mm -hmm. but they're worth mastering, they're worth the practice?
1: Before I answer that, I want to go back to a partial question you asked earlier, which is what is empathy in a business context? Because that's another thing where people don't embrace it because they're actually misnaming it. So empathy is not being nice. It's not caving to crazy demands. It's not even agreeing with people. Empathy is about seeing things from another person's point of view, as much as you're able with your own biases that you may have, but trying to see things through another person's point of view. And then using that information to act in a certain way or take a certain course of action going forward. It doesn't mean you necessarily give the person what they want. And that's why one of the stories you've probably heard me tell over and over again is that one of my most empathetic bosses was someone who had to lay off the entire marketing team. He made a difficult business decision in an empathetic way. And it was about, okay, I have to make this decision. How are my people going to respond? How are they going to feel? What are they going to need? What can I do? And how can I communicate this? Versus I need to tell the whole team they're getting laid off in advance of a sale. I need to check that off my to-do list. That's an unempathetic leader, right? right? But the leader that prepares and says, we're still making this difficult business decision, but we're going to look at it from the point of view of the people that are impacted by it and try to give them as much as we can. In the context of having to make that difficult business decision. So, a lot of leaders tend to think, well, empathy is going to take me too long, right? I won't. If I'm trying to gather everyone's perspective, I'll never make a decision. Actually, empathetic leaders are very decisive mm-hmm. because they're able to distill information and communicate to the people who might not quite be getting what they want in a way that's explanatory and understanding. And I see your point of view. You've been heard, but it doesn't mean we can always give everybody exactly what they want. Correct. Yeah. And so I think a big part of that is you alluded to it earlier, this idea of it starts with you, like empathy for other people starts with you. You have to get your own house in order. And that's why practice presence is the number one tip I give the first tip I give in the leadership section, because without that, you'll never be able to do the other stuff. You need to ground yourself. You need to make space in your own mind to hear and take in another person's point of view without defensiveness or fear. And if you are too caught up in your own insecurities, fears, to-do lists, like you're trying to do three different things at once as you're talking to somebody, you're not there. You're not in the moment to be able to read what another person needs in that moment.
0: Have you been secretly watching some of those discrete coaching sessions? (laughs) No, truly. Well, this is why we're like-minded. So yeah. what's so wonderful is <laughs> yeah. you know, it's uncomfortable. It's not easy to be a mm-hmm. superb leader. It takes dedication and commitment. And mm-hmm. the empathy path that you've shown folks is just such a sweet and gentle way mm-hmm. to, to get back going.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't have to be, you know, that, this idea of like presence or mindfulness is scary to people, but it doesn't have to be. Seven days at a yoga retreat, it can be five to 10 minutes a day of grounding yourself, whether it's a cup of coffee without looking at a screen or going for a walk or yes, meditating or getting, you know, a meditation app on your phone, whatever it takes, knitting for some people, jogging for some people, whatever it is for you that grounds you and sort of gets you back in the moment and out of your hamster wheel.
0: We call that cognitive replenishment.
1: Exactly. That's why I loved your book. But this idea, you know, and if you look at, there's so much being written about the world's most successful entrepreneurs and leaders, what do they have in common? I think like 99% of them have some sort of a mindfulness routine or mindfulness practice in the morning. And they're sharing that with the world and going, yeah, I make time for that in my calendar. I'm super busy. I'm running a global conglomerate and I still make time for 10 minutes of meditation in the morning. Uh Uh-huh. So no one, no one has an excuse, right?
0: <laughs> well, all I can say is that the one that I personally do, because mm-hmm. those of us who work with people need to be our shiniest and most sparkly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes me about five minutes, and it covers the greatest good of all concerned, including me. So I like to cover everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like not just for my own benefit, but you know, make sure that. All my choices are for the greatest good of all concerned, which sometimes is not as evident to me as I'm stumbling through the decision making, right. which again is another part of brilliant leadership, understanding that we all stumble, we all mm-hmm. make mistakes and being whole. Uh, vast. We, we really uh, encourage people to uh, embrace their wholeness, not their perfection. And that's right. the part of the self-compassion and the compassionate action towards oneself.
1: Right. That's the thing is like I wrote a book on this and researched it and I'm constantly screwing up, you
0: know, <laughs> because I'm feisty and
1: I I'm hot-headed and I react in the moment and but now I'm just more aware of it and now I can repair a little bit more than I used to. The other thing is really about curiosity. Curiosity is the number one trait of empathic people. And if you are a manager or a leader who thinks you know everything better than anyone else, you're probably not an empathic leader. It's about curiosity. It's about if you get feedback, you don't meet it with defensiveness. You meet it with negative feedback. You might meet it with curiosity. Like, wow, why, you know, Michelle, I'm I'm so sorry that you got that impression. Please tell me more about why Mm -hmm. you thought that. Let's talk about that. That's meeting curiosity. And also just being able to investigate for someone else. Don't assume what their point of view is. Don't guess what it is ask questions and listen to the answers that's the other part of that is not just ask them with the intent of waiting to say what you want to say <laughs> but actually and that's where you requires presence right if you are not in the moment and you ask a question because you're teeing something up for something else you want to ask in 5 minutes you're not being present to actually take in the information that you're getting from someone one of the most powerful tools i have found in facilitating workshops a very rowdy executives c level executives all levels is when someone says something that i know is controversial i know is going to set the group off might even set me off i say that's interesting tell me more mm-hmm. those three words are magical mm-hmm. you know and and to keep asking so they explain a little bit tell me more about that and y- you get information and they feel heard so you kill two birds with one stone <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. And well, what we're talking about, a lot of the work that I've been called to do over the years is work with corporate bullies, because people do hide behind their titles as a form of the leadership, they believe that they can then be rude and, and dismissive. And now we're talking about psychological safety, creating psychological safety. Mm-hmm. We've been, you know, looking at that for many years. And I'm just curious, what is it that you think, creates that psychological safety. Because uh, what I have found is that the bullies put everybody on edge. And -hmm. unless that's handled, one of the things that I've done is been able to disarm them and then bring them along, because Mm -hmm. they really are uncomfortable. And most of the time would like a solution that will save face. So Mm -hmm. if you provide a solution that brings them with their dignity, most Mm -hmm. people over the years have always wanted to become heroic. So it's very doable and possible. I'd like to ask you your experience with turning a bully around. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not an
1: expert in psychological safety, but I have talked to folks and, you know, really the biggest element of that environment is trust. You cannot just simply say we are going to create a psychologically safe environment. If people don't feel like they can trust the environment, they never will. So that's about, there's so many vectors to that. It's mm-hmm. knowing that people can make mistakes. It's knowing that I can be who I really am and I'm not going to be penalized for it. It's also like on the other side, rewarding behaviors that show kindness and compassion and, and service to each other. And, and modeling that is like, this is the way you find success here. We're going to acknowledge you. We're going to reward you. That's how you bring your values to life. More than just, you know, with the work I do, like a poster on the wall that says, We are an empathetic organization. What are you actually doing in your policies and your rituals and your protocols and your hiring practices and your performance reviews? Like, you have to actually bring that to life so people trust it. And, you know, I can say it's interesting because I did this work years after leaving a very, very toxic work environment that was run by a bully. Literally, someone was crying every day in that organization. And these were top performers that had been doing amazing work. And I look back at that now and it's interesting because that leader sometimes comments on my LinkedIn posts about the work I'm doing now and I'm like I really hope you've improved as a leader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know you, you, when you look back you can tell that was about fear, that was about protecting their turf. That was about wanting to project a certain image, mm-hmm. and kind of going back to what I said before, thinking they could more quickly get things done well, by um, may I torching. Right? Add one, right?
0: May I add one? Uh, please, yeah. because this was one that's never spoken. The mm-hmm. enter, pure entertainment value the C suite has of watching who's still standing at the end of uh, uh, having two absolutely silos. I witnessed over and over again the gladiatorship of men Mm -hmm. and women Mm -hmm. to see who would be left standing Mm -hmm. and just enjoying it as sport. Yes. had to add that one. That one is no longer okay. There's, there's been VPs at companies that I
1: worked for and senior VPs that, you know, would send horrendous emails copied to everyone to shame someone. And I'm like, what is your goal there? You want to show it that it's okay for that. It's not okay for people to take risks. Do you want to feel like a bigger man? Do you feel the power of that? Like, what is the intent of why you would act in that way and why you would diminish somebody? Like, why do you think that person's going to come back and then do really great work for you after being treated that way? They won't. They won't. And so again, kind of looking back at that experience, I was, I was very much more junior than this person. So I, I was younger I wasn't confident in being able to confront this person, but I had some like unexpected confrontations with this person. Knowing what I know now, if this was like Maria 2021, I actually would have said, can we have a sit down outside of any of the specific issues that were talked about in that meeting? And can I just share with you the impact of what the team thinks you think of us? Yes. And just, inform you that that's what's going on. And, it, you know, you can let me know if that's the image you want us to have, if that's what you're using to motivate, you know, to actually have an intellectual conversation
0: about it. A clean, authentic, yeah. respectful, that takes skill. Oh, it takes Those skill. And... That, that leaders need to learn through your work, through my work, through the mm-hmm. work of people who are realizing that leadership is an honor. Mm-hmm. It's not just about money.
1: Right. And so who knows if that would have been effective, but I think there, like, even again, looking back at Maria from that time and Maria now it's creating, protecting my own boundaries and grounding myself to be able to have that conversation without thinking that person's opinion was a reflection on my worth or my value, being able to sort of stand in front of that person and not let them shrink me.
0: Well, that's the, you have done your own work. Mm -hmm. You know your strengths and your weaknesses, those of us who are visible need to so that we can own what we did well and and allow others to to succeed in what they do well. We Mm -hmm. can create those teams. But this brings up something that you and I were discussing earlier today during another conversation about allyship Mm -hmm. and how when you see people who are being impacted in an organization, through a lack of empathetic leaders, a lack of empathetic choices, what you might suggest for them when they're in the situation now that you were in many years ago. Mm -hmm. And they may not have the social capital that you have now, but they're in a situation where there's a lack of empathy. What might you tell those people? Your original
1: question though was about allyship. And that's the thing is that's what made that environment so toxic is that the people that were more senior to us that were getting the abuse, everybody was getting the abuse, but there were people that were slightly more senior than us that could have said something and gone to bat for the rest of the team. Like it shouldn't have been up to us to communicate to this person at this way higher level. There can be, you know, the simplest thing is like when you advocacy. see advocacy, when you see bad behavior in meetings, for example, call it out in the moment, even Mm -hmm. if it's not directed towards you. When you see like a leader talking over a certain individual, if you can, can you say, well, hold on a second. I think Michelle was still talking. I'd like to hear the rest of her thought. That's being an ally. It's not just about you being the one in the decision-making power. It's being able to be an advocate when sort of like when someone's being bullied, do you stand up with them? Or do you provide an environment where things can get redirected back to the person who's power is being taken away.
0: May I give you an example? 30 years ago, I was managing a 60% of a national retailer's business. I went into a meeting and my boss and the man that worked for me were there. It's very early, but there was only one chair to sit in. And my boss said, why don't you sit on his lap? Oh my gosh. And I looked at him. This was in 1983,
1: Oh my gosh!
0: people historical perspective. Yes,
1: him. absolutely.
0: And I looked at him, and I said, "Excuse me." He said, "Well," uh, and he realized he had <laughs> he, he he had said something that he shouldn't have said because yes. But I showed up immediately, like the next morning. It was like a late night meeting. And the next morning, and I said that if you ever talk to me that way again in front of anyone, mm-hmm. you are going to be reported. I'm going to have my lawyers who have dare you? This man worked for me. And you're making a a joke about me sitting on his lap. Mm -hmm. I said, and this was like, before it was even Anita Hill. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, he did this to all these people and nobody said a word. Always making people uncomfortable in those ways. And it keeps people off balance and the off balance is intentional. Absolutely. Yeah. And the allyship there comes
1: into play where that person who worked for you should have also said something. Mm-hmm. That's being an ally, right? Not just you, but no, this is, this is not appropriate.
0: Or the time when I was in an, a meeting and they made a joke that was a racial slur and there was no black person in the room at the time. And it was just like, you don't do that. Allyship and empathy. How do you see it being a real tool in the toolbox of the enlightened leader going forward?
1: Well, even Simon Sinek talks about the fact that empathy is the number one tool in a leader's toolkit. And I think because the way that we are living in modern society, the way that the modern workplace is functioning, modern industry, Mm -hmm. the reason why we're hearing so much about empathy as like the number one skill in the 21st century is because the pace of change is more rapid than it's ever been. And so you cannot get away with being a lone wolf performer anymore. Problems are too complex. Challenges are too complex. They're global. They span people. They span geographies. They span systems. So there's no way one person can do it all. In order to make this team sport to solve problems better work, you have to be able to collaborate and to create connections with people quickly. And that's why empathy is so important because that enables you to connect with and collaborate with people on a level that you are really seeing their humanity Mm -hmm. and you're going to work more productively and more innovatively as a result. So it's sort of like the victors will be the ones that can create those relationships the fastest Mm -hmm. and create genuine relationships the fastest. That's why you can't fake this, right? You can't, you can't fake the empathy.
0: No, it's. When things are not going well, you find out what people really think about the relationship.
1: For sure. And I I spoke to a leader, a CIO for my book. I remember him saying like, the true test of of an empathetic leader is not when things are going well. It's when the company's in crisis. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've seen over the last two years, 18 months, is the companies that thought they had true leaders didn't. The companies that thought they had good cultures because of like their free ping pong tables and free lunch and thought that was culture, they were in for a rude awakening.
0: And the companies that had a few zillion dollars just sitting there and could afford to make mistakes and lose people and deal with turnover, those sorts of companies are now with, people are looking at unions, people are looking at getting, Uh, You know, the great reorganization or the (laughs) rethinking of it is because of empathy. Well, I am I'd like to just say if there was one thing that everybody listening today would come away with Mm -hmm. all of our business colleagues all of our friends, all of our drop-in listeners about empathy and the book, The Empathy Edge, which is just absolutely fabulous. It's just a wonderful opportunity to brush up on empathy, uh, learn a little bit more about how you can pick up your game and be someone who's creating those amazing teams that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So Maria, what would you want folks to know? What would you want them to think about? One idea that they they come away with? I
1: think, something we spoke about earlier is really understanding what empathy is and what it isn't. And to understand that just being nice while very noble is not empathy. Empathy requires you to see things from another person's point of view and then to take action. That's, that's compassion. Compassion is empathy in action. Mm -hmm. And to understand that that is a strength as a leader. It doesn't make you soft. It doesn't make you a doormat. It doesn't make you weak or indecisive. It actually improves your ability to get work done, make decisions, find the right people, hit your targets, all of those things. So being able to flip that script of what success really means and the fact that empathy is not just, you know, I always say this, it's not
0: just good for society. It's great for business. (laughs) I love it. So thank you so much, Maria, for being here today. I just want everyone to know they can pick up a copy of The Empathy Edge on uh, Amazon or uh, reach out to Maria at red-slice.com. Yeah. And and also, um, she has a wonderful following on uh, Facebook and on LinkedIn. So please let us know and we will be in touch with you. Maria, I just want to thank you. For your work i truly appreciate it you are doing the hard work allowing people in the trenches and and their leaders to up their game and it's done easily joyfully and with a lot of fun and and <laughs> no reason that's another thing you know all the all the leaders that we have had the honor of working with over the years everything you're talking about i'm just going absolutely yes 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 Mm -hmm. and to make it accessible, and to also make it just a joyful experience. We are so much looking forward to future uh, podcasts with you and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. For over three decades, we have built vast around the simple premise that who I am and what I do matters. By awakening the genius within, we better enrich our lives and the world around us. This idea reflects our commitment to imparting authenticity and practical optimism as an empowering perspective. It guides us to take responsibility for the life we create and the impact we have on those around us. And as Maria so brilliantly pointed out today, what we do ripples out into the world and makes a huge difference. By acknowledging this, we can most assuredly improve the quality of life on this planet. If you would like to become an original thinker creating a quality of life beyond your imagination, subscribe to the Vast newsletter at www.vastinstitute.com, listen to our podcasts, read our blogs, and know that together we can make the world a much better place. Have a wonderful day. God bless.